listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. Hello, you're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week July 10 to July 14. A huge week this week. Dr. Jen came in to tell us all about what an itch is and why we scratch. And I'm just pre-warning you that if you listen to it, you may not be able to stop itching. It's very true. We also had um, Sami Shah come in and chat to us about his new book, The Islamic Republic of Australia, and also we talked about sleepovers. Yes, and then because it's Melbourne Magic Festival, we talked to Pierre Ulrich, a magician, about his show White Lies, and he did magic in the studio that you can hear. Not the kind of magic that we do every day, though. (laughs) In the studio. <laughs> Thank God it wasn't that. And then Laura Dunneman came in and made us all do job interviews with... Uh, we did some impro. We did bit of an impro. I don't know. I can't they got increasingly I worse as we went along. <laughs> I have three thumbs. <laughs> Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The Islamic Republic of Australia is a new book out via ABC Books. Its author is Sami Shah. He's joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure. This is a fantastic book, but it's also a quite complex one in which you set out to explain why you're no longer a Muslim, even as you explain the tenets of Islam and defend Muslims against Islamophobia, and you do all of that while telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs> this is not an easy task you've set yourself. Uh, what motivated you to write the book? Now that you put it that way, I had no <laughs> idea what I was trying. Um, I, I don't know, because I find myself in a weird position. I'm, I'm, I was born a Muslim. I grew up a Muslim. Then, like so many people around the world now, you, you know, you become an atheist. There's many atheists around the world, but people don't realize that there are atheists in the Muslim community as well. Um, and they've got a very particular place in that uh, because the way a lot of the communities are and a lot of the countries are, it's more dangerous being an apostate, which is someone who leaves a religion. Um, but I wanted to be open about that. I, 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 you know, one of the, I felt like one of the important things is being able to say, I am this, and it's okay to be that. So that was part of the reason for writing the book. Um, and then being able to say that, look, it, yeah, it's okay to leave re- re- religion. Religion is flawed. Uh, it's, uh, it's quite daft at times. But uh, you can't then turn around and hate the people. You can't, like, there's a difference between the, the belief and the believer. And, and you know, treating Muslims like third world country um, or like third world country citizens mm-hmm. in your own country or, um, you know, internment camps or banning their visas and, and, you know, kicking them out of the country or talking about them like they're not human. That is dangerous. Let's um, un- yeah. pick some of that. You write and you've discussed this in your previous book, too, about narrowly avoiding being killed by a suicide bomber in Pakistan, mm-hmm. being accused of blasphemy mm-hmm. for your comedy. Yet, despite all of that and despite being an atheist yourself, you write about wanting to educate your daughter about Islam. Why? Because it's a cultural thing. That's one of the things. Like, it's a big part. Um, I realized this when I was talking to Catholics or ex-Catholics. And mm-hmm. ex-Jews. You're in the right Hello. place. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, there we go. And it's just something like you can be a hardcore atheist who's never going back to the church again, but you know, when um, you'll still say God bless you or you'll still have certain mm. Catholic aspects to your life, which we, you can never be rid of. We've got a friend who describes herself as culturally Catholic, That's so right. has mm. left the church, but yeah, it still def- has defined who she is. Absolutely, and there's culturally Jewish as well. And, yeah. there's, and, and so there is culturally Muslim, 
which is what I am. And I just felt like my daughter, she's going to grow up in Australia for the, hopefully for the rest of her life. And she's Aussie as they come already. But I wanted to have a little bit of an understanding of where she came from. You know, that whole immigrants complex of like, how do I learn the new world while not letting go of the old world and that kind of a thing. And I figured learning about the religions a good way of um, indoctrinating her into some of the cultural things that she's going to miss out on otherwise. You discuss the radicalization of young Muslims. You spend mm-hmm. a fair bit of time on that, but you say that most non-Muslims simply don't understand the historical perspective that people from colonized countries yeah. bring to contemporary politics. What do you mean by that? Um, it's that thing. One of the most horrific things we have in global discourse is Holocaust denial. Right, So if there are people out there who deny that the Holocaust happened and they're idiots and they're morons and we should all lambast them every chance we get, which we do. Yes. But one of the bigger, th- well, not bigger, but one of the equivalent crimes that has happened, which no one really seems to talk about, is colonialism denial. Mm. which is um, what was done to African countries, what was done to South Asia, what was done to large parts of the world by smaller, certain European or North American colonizing countries and, and the legacy of that. So you can look, for example, at the Middle East. I used to have this conversation a lot where um, I was in a small country town in Western Australia and I was working for the exclusive brethren community designing websites. It was a thing I had to do for a while. Wow. And uh, Tony and <laughs> At one point it turned out that well, the guy who ran the company was having an affair with a non-brethren woman and I had to write the brethren porn emails because he didn't, he wasn't allowed to because Jesus says no internet but adultery is okay. I don't know. Uh, okay. So that was my life for a while. But, it's a whole other book there. A whole other life story there. But um, they used to keep coming up to me and they'd be like, what's the problem with the Middle East? And I knew why they were asking. I knew what they wanted me to say. But that's not the real answer. Because I would say, well, the problem is that it's a whole lot of countries that are arbitrarily created by the French and the British after the end of the First World War using things like straight lines to just divide entire ethnic communities. Uh, there's real tensions, and that every time any progress is made, America invades, bombs the daylights out of a country, creates entire new levels of chaos. ISIS wouldn't exist if Iraq war hadn't happened and things like that. And they're like, no, it's because they're Muslims. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell me more. Yeah, it's just that, that kind of reductive thinking where you're like, okay, either all of history has happened... And we're a result of that, or every single person who's born, you comes out of a Muslim woman's, you know, vagina, it just comes out yelling jihad. <laughs> and, and one of those two sounds, and the, half the people in the in Australia right now would be like, yeah, that makes total sense. I don't see the problem with that logic. I just kind of wanted to educate them as to why that's daft. Do you think part of the reason that it's hard for people who haven't been raised uh, around Islam to understand the religion is because there are so many different strains of it as well i think it's a lack of engagement like look it's that thing of like um there's you know i have met so many people here who like i've never met a muslim i'm like there's 1.6 billion of them (laughs) like how have you the bigger question is how have you successfully avoided meeting so many people in the world like yeah. and they, that is the thing they, they, they look there's many types of muslims the shias and the sunnis and the types of shias and the types of sunnis and then there's other groups and subgroups and all of that you don't even need to know most of those things um it's just the same as i didn't know that the, there was seven day adventists and exclusive brethren and i just thought it was catholics and protestants and yeah. that was it um but you get the general strokes as long as you understand that Religion is a thing people have in their lives. Um, and most religions say heinous things because they were written thousands of years ago by people living, you know, in mud huts. Um, it doesn't mean that the, the people practicing them today all believe in them. 
Mm. And there, there's that distinction, you know. You just have once you understand that, it's easier to take someone at face value for who they are versus going, oh, maybe he's going to kill me and like, you know, kidnap my children and sell them off to Middle East or something. <laughs> yeah. It's a conversation I've had. Yeah. You wrote about how at one stage you were quite a fervent believer, and some of your friends, or one of your friends in particular, went on to become something of an Islamist. Yes. Um, Milton, I wonder if a couple of generations ago the response to, say, a violent situation like Syria would have been framed much more in terms of a kind of secular leftist radicalism and whether the disappearance of that as an option contributes to well, the appeal of Islamism. There is a thing of like in the 70s and the 60s and stuff, uh, the last time we had terrorism on this scale was the 70s, right? And and during that time, the terrorism wasn't framed in religious language as yeah. much. Um, there was things like Black September, you know, and, and, and the Munich attacks. And those were framed in, in the language of you know, Palestinian nationalism. Um, you had the IRA, which wasn't about it in, in Deep down, it was about religion, but again, it was about nationalism and those things. And a lot of that has been lost now in that if you look at it deep down, most of the terrorism that happens today is still ISIS has less to do with religion, more to do with borders. It's got to do with the Sykes-Picot agreement. It's got to do with Syria-Iraq borders. It's got things like that. Uh, Taliban in Pakistan, they want their own you know, areas where they control the property and the land and the people versus the Pakistani government. It's just religion becomes an easier marketing tagline, I suppose. If you're, if you're a new terrorist group, you can either say, we are fighting for the independence of the so-and-so people in that lo- locality with this neighborhood and that postal code. Or you can say, God told us to do it. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's listen to that. So it's just that. <laughs> uh, one of the most interesting chapters in the book, or sections of the book, is entitled Hijab Splaining, mm-hmm. which is not written by you, but written by Ishma Alvi, your daughter's mother. Yeah. She's in many ways far more critical of Islam than you are. She's, um, and I will not try to speak for her, but basically my understanding is, and and my experience is personally, that um, she's a Muslim, she's a woman who grew up in a Muslim country. And a woman who grows up in a Muslim country has a far different experience than a man who grows up in a Muslim country. I had a far more privileged experience and thus my levels of bitterness and resentment are far (laughs) lower. And... um, it's not just Muslim countries, most of the developing world. It's like that. If, you, if you're a w- woman growing up in India, um, in a Hindu community, you will be just as angry once you're aware of the kind of abuse that you've been put through psychologically by the community itself. So, yeah. You were talking about teaching your daughter about Islam. Mm-hmm. If she did develop a spirituality... Oh, boy. As, a, <laughs> as someone that believes in... is now an atheist, how would yeah. you deal with that? It's that thing of, like, look, if she comes back with a hijab tomorrow and she's like, Daddy, this is what I'm wearing now, I'm like, look, it's your choice. Um, yeah. It's no different than any other choice if she comes back with a tattoo or anything like that. <laughs> it's true. It's just that thing of, like... <laughs> I think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, it'll be that thing of, like, look, it's your choice as long as you made an informed choice and you are... And, and and I am willing to accept the fact that I went through a religious phase and then I went through a phase where I thought I was, you know, a vampire from the Anne Rice books. And I went <laughs> everyone, when you, especially when you're young, you're, you're a mishmash of stupidity, stupid ideas. And I'm fine with her experimenting with all these ideas until she settles on whatever her identity becomes, um, however that happens. But... Um, yeah, and, you know, if, if she decides to become a religious person, she becomes a religious person. As long as she doesn't then demand that I pray, I think we'll get along fine. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, in the book, you talk to a number of ex-Muslims in Australia. They all use um, pseudonyms. That's right. And it's clear that there's quite a lot of trauma involved in leaving the religion, particularly deal. in um, Australia. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Um, it's, it's not just Australia, it's global. So, for example, the book came out. And because of the book, I've been doing some promotional work. And some of that promotional work ended up making its way back to Pakistan. And, and there's me talk, joking with Walid Ali on the project about eating bacon. And um, my family, extended family, is calling up my parents and going disown him from the family. How dare he do that and everything. Basically, I, bas- I guarantee that I'm never being invited to any family get-togethers again, which is great for me. But <laughs> not so great for my parents now. And, yeah. and um, that same kind of... Because especially in an immigrant community, like the Muslim communities here, some of them are many... I mean, some of them are five generations old. Others are one generation old. Um, and they've, you know, they've got the kids who are growing up and and culture and religion becomes a big um, gluing factor, big cohes- cohesive factor in their lives. Um, they then when they leave the religion, they're seeing as not just leaving, you know, the belief, but also leaving the entire community behind, leaving, becoming too westernized, giving it, like those kind of pressures come into place. Um, and it's very difficult for a lot of people. There's a, there's a forum for ex-Muslims and there's frequently people who are on the verge of suicide or on the verge of um, mental breakdowns and, 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 you know, we counsel each other and, and we're there for each other and then sometimes you have to actually go to extreme lengths to help someone because their life might be in, in danger and that is the thing that exists and we can pretend like it doesn't exist because to just talk about it fuels Islamophobia or you can have a nuanced discussion about it and help the people who need the help and also not fuel Islamophobia, I feel. What do you think it's going to take to shift the conversation about Islam in Australia and Muslims right now? You look at what just happened to Yasmin Abdul-Majid mm-hmm. and we've effectively run her out of Australia. Yeah. Do you, can you see the, that kind of shifting anytime soon? In a very ugly way, I know it'll shift, but the way it'll shift is from my understanding of Australian history from everyone I've spoken to is when we get a new group to hate. Yeah. So I figure it's the Buddhists. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Them or like the Jains or someone. (laughs) They've had it too easy for too long. But that that does seem to be a big thing because I I spoke to a lot of Asian Australians and Mm. they're like, oh, it was us two generations ago. Like in the 90s, it was us. And now it's the, and then like the Cronulla riots. Yeah. That was the, that was not against Muslims. That was against the Lebanese. The Muslim aspect got thrown onto it years later. So now mm. it's the Muslims. Then it'll be someone else. Then it'll be someone else. And I guess that's just the the gamut that you have to run through to become a true Aussie oh. in some ways. You do say towards the end of the book that I think that if I'd grown up in Australia, I might still be a Muslim. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Because you're under attack constantly. Right, you're you're being besieged on all sides um, by everyone criticizing you and and hating you and 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 hating the belief which is a part of you and things like that. So if you, like, when I say I'm no longer a Muslim, the first people who come to me for you know to help their side of the argument is people like Andrew Bolt, Alan Jones, you know, the whole conservative media, and you don't want to empower them. So then to deny empowering them, you just keep claiming you're a Muslim. Mm. And there are many people I know who are ex-Muslims who just keep it quiet because they're like, I don't want to damage my family's rep. I don't want to damage the Muslim community by saying I'm no longer Muslim because they get attacked then by people going. And that happened in my case. The moment I came out about it, the right wing media was far more excited about it than anyone Mm. else. But um, the fact that I wouldn't then lend my voice to them has infuriated them further. But um, it is that thing where... 
you do feel as if it's a part of your identity more than you necessarily would have if people were more chill about it. Yeah. It's a fascinating book and I feel like we could talk about it for a lot longer. It's entitled The Islamic Republic of Australia. It's out by ABC Books. The author is Semi Shah. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're in Triple R. Three Triple R. That's right, here on Breakfasters, it's the long-anticipated return of Dr. Jen for Weird Science. How are you going, Dr. Jen? I missed you guys. We missed you. I was away, then I came back, and you were away, and then I was away, and what was going on? It was like a long-distance relationship. I know, (laughs) with all the heartbreak associated. (laughs) (laughs) This is taking a strange emotion. (laughs) Well, you know, it's always good to mix things up in the morning, isn't it? uh, This is a great topic, Dr. Jen. Very curious to know what you're going to say about scratching. Have you you guys started scratching yet? Not you knew yet. I was going to yeah. do it. Soon. I had last, I've been so last rubbing night. myself up against the wall <laughs> like an old oh, pig. Jeff, do we need to know that? <laughs> this is really taking a strange turn. It's so funny though because last night, you know, I was doing my standard, doing lots of research, writing my blog post, sitting there, and I just could not stop scratching oh. for several hours. I was like, like oh, oh, I'm just kind of have I got mice, you know, or lice, or I don't know, mites or something on me. I just <laughs> don't bring lice into our studio. Or mice for that matter. <laughs> So, yeah, itching. So, do you know, I love the definition of an itch. Do you know what the definition of an itch is? No. A sensation on the skin that leads to the desire to scratch. It's not very helpful. And and something that leads you to scratch is an itch. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a circular definition, really. (laughs) How cool is that? Jordan's looking very confused. No, no, no. I'm just letting it sink in. (laughs) And I have to do that with my mouth open. Uh, (laughs) Eyes right back. (laughs) (laughs) So the interesting thing about itching is, do you remember when you were a kid and you got a mozzie bite and your parents said, don't scratch, it'll make it worse? Yes. 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 Do you know they were actually right? (laughs) Damn it. So I looked into it. So the whole reason you scratch, so let's just imagine, and as soon as we start talking about it, everyone listening is going to start feeling like they need to scratch. Let's imagine that you've got something on your hand that feels itchy. Mm -hmm. The reason you scratch is because it distracts you from the itch, essentially. So when you scratch, you're creating a mild form of pain. And that pain is just enough that instead of the itch signals going to your brain, instead pain signals go to the brain oh and they God. mask the itch. Okay, so oh, that's how you yes. stop feeling itchy because you just it's, and it doesn't really we don't sort of associate it as pain because it's not bad pain, but it's enough pain to to, to can change the story that's going to our brain essentially. So if I had an itch on my <clears throat> left palm, and Which I you probably sc- do right now, and, and I scratched my right palm, would that still work? No, because different nerves. Uh. So it's, it's, it's bamboozling the nerve signals of the nerve where the itch is. But I've got to tell you the next part of the story, okay? okay. So your brain's suddenly going, oh, pain, okay. But your brain has a very specific response to pain. Well, it has a lot of responses to pain, but one of them is to release serotonin, which, you know, is the happy hormone. That's why itching feels good. Exactly. So that's why itching feels good. But the problem is that the serotonin doesn't only make you feel good, it also then masks the pain. So you go back to feeling itch. And so the way to then counteract the itch again is to scratch a bit harder and make the pain bad enough that it overrides the serotonin. It's like a bad joke. Well, it's a feedback cycle, right? (laughs) So it goes round and round. So this 
is why people can end up scratching themselves to bleeding because you've got to scratch harder and harder and harder to counteract that serotonin that's masking the pain. So if you engage with this cycle, you can just keep itching and itching and itching and itching and and it can become a really debilitating condition. There are actually conditions out there of chronic itching and people can do incredibly, you know, bad damage to their skin because they just can't stop itching. Why don't we itch then in response why don't we scratch then in response to serious pain like if you you know you get a wound or whatever. well because you're not scratching in response to the pain you're you're creating pain in response to the itch do you know what i mean it's the other so way you, around you're, you're seeking pain to get rid of the itch you're it's, not seeking an itch to get rid of pain exactly yeah, right. you're seeking you're trying to create pain Je- jeff's furrowed furrowed brow <laughs> doesn't seem to indicate that he Clearly understands that bad job this morning <laughs> no, no. explaining no, it makes very clear so yeah. you're, you're itching something feels itchy the way to stop your brain going, oh, I'm itchy, is instead to make your brain go, oh, that's painful. And you can do that by creating only very mild pain by scratching. But because your brain then responds to that pain, it's, you know, it just ramps up and up and up and up and up. And eventually the pain that will distract from the itch becomes really serious, unless you can distract yourself in some other way. But do we do it for other discomforts <coughs> as well? I was trying to think about that. I don't know. Do we? I mean, pain can be a good distraction from all sorts of things. It just comes down to how bad the pain is. Mm, I don't know. No, I don't know. Because I, I, I always thought, like, with itches, you know, that one of, maybe one possible reason you might do it is your body's sort of telling you there's something, you've got a wound on the skin or whatever, you need to sort of scratch out whatever's come into your skin. Yeah, but, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's there's partly psychological stuff it. going on. <laughs> it's a plausible hypothesis. Yeah. But the, no, the, it, I mean, can, some of it can be psychological. And I read some extraordinary cases of people, and I can't remember the name of the condition now, but this condition where people believe that they're you know, infested with some sort of parasite that's causing itchy and they can spend decades scratching at something that isn't actually there and it becomes this, you know, psychologically reinforced and incredibly debilitating because, you know, anything from a mozzie bite to to various forms of cancer to chemotherapy to, you know, there's so many things, eczema, so many things can cause itches and this cycle repeats regardless of what causes it, that the very thing that makes it feel better gives this only very momentary release and then you're back to where you started. So, oh. Yeah, I was going to when you used to get a mozzie bite, you put a cross in it with your fingernails. Do you remember that yeah, yeah. little? Yeah. But again, it's just is pain. that a pain? Yeah. It's a pain relief. It's ah. just distraction. Yeah, it's absolutely just distraction. It's funny because scratching and itching seems so simple, and as though we must understand every aspect of it, but it's actually really complicated. There's been decades of research on it. We've associated that huh. genes are involved. There's actually a journal. There is a scientific journal called Itch. Which pumps out volume after volume (laughs) of, you know, high-powered, extremely high-quality scientific research trying to understand what what itching is and and why we scratch. And it's it's unbelievably interesting. Mm. But some of the most fascinating stuff is around the fact that just like yawning, itching turns out to be contagious. Really? So when I start talking about itching, I haven't actually been observing you guys well no, enough. I'm imagining that yeah, Jeff's scratching, yeah, scratching there a little myself. bit. He's always scratching. <laughs> they did a they did a really interesting study where they had two two audiences. They put them each in a room and they had to listen to a talk and they filmed the audience. And one of the talks was about itching and one of the talks was about something else, you know, scientific but not about itching. And they filmed the audience and significantly higher levels of scratching in the audience who were listening about the talk about itching because as soon as you hear about it. 
you start itching yeah. or if you watch somebody else, you start itching. And there's been heaps of research about that. So one found that um, being more prone to starting to itch in response to somebody else itching is associated with being a bit neurotic because <laughs> oh. the idea is that it's about being empathic. So the more empathy you have. So, Jeff, if you're sitting there scratching and I feel strong empathy with you, then I start scratching in response to that because well, of my I noticed you haven't started scratching. <laughs> no, well, that's because apparently empathy has nothing to do with it. It's not empathy at all. It's about neuroticism. So clearly I'm not neurotic enough. Ah. But then this year this really interesting study came out about mice. So mice don't have very good vision, right? Mice are traditionally nocturnal animals, so they respond much more to sound and to scent. But they put mice in cages <clears throat> next to each other where one mouse had had something done to it so it was extremely itchy, poor mouse. Poor mouse. Yeah, I know. How mean is that? And they watched the other mouse. And even though mice don't have particularly good vision, the mice who could see another mouse scratching immediately started scratching. Within five seconds, the mouse started scratching. And then they said, well, that could still somehow be something to do with smell or sound. So then they put the mouse just in front of a TV screen with a scratching mouse. And again, within five seconds, the mouse started itching. I thought, oh, this is interesting. And they looked in the brains of these mice and it turns out that when one mouse sees another mouse scratch, a chemical gets released in that mouse's brain and the mouse isn't deciding to scratch. It's just this completely instinctive, hardwired behaviour that it starts scratching. And they actually extracted that chemical from... A mouse and injected it into another mouse, and that mouse started scratching, even if it didn't see another another mouse scratching. So it's just this chemical, and it's, it happens in the part of the brain responsible for for the body clock, basically. So, what's the, the biological is, purpose then of a of a like a sympathy scratch? Well, perfect question, because the idea is that if you have a ba- behaviour that's hardwired, that's in completely instinctive and not in the animal's control at all, it must be really important. Yeah. So the best idea we have is that if, you're, if you live in a group of other animals and suddenly one starts scratching, it's probably a signal to you that there's something potentially dangerous or irritable on your body. Oh. You know, maybe there's a swarm of mosquitoes, maybe you've just walked into a field of nettles that are going to sting you, whatever it is, and you should start scratching to, to try and get it off, whatever it is off your skin. So it's like a protective behaviour and yours, you know, it's kind of herd mentality. Well, if one of you started scratching then I should probably start scratching too and that'll, you know, that'll keep me safe. So, so it really is contagious. Do they so we have don't... any ideas as to how you can stop scratching or how you can avoid scratching? Well, you just have to not start, I think. Oh. Calamine lotion. I don't know. Does that work? I've never tried it. It did for me when I was did a kid, it? yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. So the idea, so we don't know if it's quite as hardwired in humans or not. That may be a, a mouse thing. But the point is it's probably contagious for us as well. And if you don't want to start scratching and get into that whole serotonin cycle of I need to scratch harder to get the relief, then I think you just have to not scratch in the first place. Sometimes it's really hard. Oh, I it is. It's really hard. And do you know sometimes you go to someone, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a itch on my scratch, on my itch, itch on my yeah. back, <laughs> and can you scratch it? And they scratch and then you go left, right. Yeah. Down, and then left, and then everywhere. Is that because of that cycle of serotonin, or is that I just? I don't know. I don't know if it's just because the nerves kind of get triggered. Because it's triggered. all about the yeah. nerves in your skin. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's. I just. Think, I, I just love this topic because you would think of you know we've made it to the moon. We're talking about going to Mars. You know, there's all these things we've done, and we still don't really understand itches and scratches. <laughs> I just think that's awesome. <sighs> so your challenge is to write a paper for this journal called Itch. I can't. I'm too busy scratching my nose. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, talking papers, you mentioned before you, you've done a blog post? Yes, I'm back to writing. Espressoscience.com. People who are busily scratching even as we speak can <laughs> read that to distract themselves. Great to have you more. back. Dr. Jen, we'll see you again very soon. See you next week. Three.
Impossible. You're listening to Breakfasts here on Triple R with Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine. Uh, it's school holidays are almost over, and I dare say there has been quite a few uh, people having sleepovers. Ah, oh, the old kid sleepover. It's good. It's good when when it's your child. I'm, I'm assuming don't have children. <laughs> um, but it's but it's good when your child goes to their friends for a sleepover. Maybe you can extrapolate from. Owning dogs to be like if you left your dogs with someone else to look over every night. Oh, mate, I'm living it right now. <laughs> <Okay>. Remember? <laughs> like, Kath has the dog. Kath has yeah. the dogs this week and ooh, what a... Dogs are having a sleepover. That's what I was Every at. day Geraldine is left going, don't have to walk the dogs <laughs> today. <laughs> don't have to so walk excited. the dogs, don't have to um, do other things. And that's why I got to go out last night. Got to, you know, went to the living streaker game. the dream. Yeah. Just no problem, no no stresses. Anyway, uh, but we're talking about sleepovers. Uh, you, you, <laughs> human sleepovers. Yeah, human sleepovers. human sleepovers. Dog sleepovers would be pretty cute, though. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. Um, did you, big fan of the sleepover? Did you have them or would you go to them more so? Well, probably because we had a big family, I didn't have them as often. Um, friends would often come to the farm, mm-hmm. so that was always exciting for them. Uh, so we had a lot of friends come and stay with us at the farm, but... Uh, I was really scared of sleeping the night. So when I was younger, I used to call mum. So I'd go to sleep uh, at a friend's house and then I'd freak out at about 10 o'clock when I was getting into bed and get really homesick, even though I was just around the corner. Yeah. And I'd make the parents call mum and, God, mum was angry when she'd turn up. <laughs> she oh, was just, you know what I mean? Like she'd, just, she'd just be like, I've got how many kids at home? I, you know. Just uh, having a night to myself. Yeah, yeah, I know. I got rid of one of them. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was a real chicken. But then at a, when I was probably about year six, I just grew out of that and I don't know why I just became more confident and then I went on heaps of sleepovers I loved them yeah I loved a sleepover as well once I got past the um I'd get really nervous because I'd sucked my thumb until I don't know until I was quite a teen like a teenager oh, my sister did that too yeah was a thumb sucker um and so I'd <laughs> I'd get to that so I'd be anxious about it and think, oh, can I hide it? And then I just kind of blurt it out and say <laughs> to my friend, Really? Just so you know, I suck my thumb. And they go, oh, yeah, that's cool, whatever. And then it'll be like, oh, relaxation time. <laughs> that's so cute. That kind of fits behind. It's kind of now as an adult, if I'm having, you know, sleepovers, you know, or staying with friends <clears throat> and stuff, it's more. You don't have to tell them about your thumb sucking. I don't have to tell them about my thumb sucking, but I go, I snore. Sorry, I snore. I snore just so you know, and, you know, and they tend to go, I snore too. It's all right. And then we can relax and sleep easy. I feel like that that was the thing about sleepover. It was like the first time as a kid, maybe one of the first times that you had to sort of engage with all kinds of social anxieties. Yes. You know, totally. Like when yeah. I know kids staying at your place and they suddenly say, but that's not how we do it. Oh, yeah. my yeah. God. It was my biggest fear. And I remember being so And you think, oh, my God, is that the right way to do it? By my Maybe I'm doing the wrong way. I'd be embarrassed. Like, Dad, like, we used to have dinner and um, being the good Catholics we were, we would all hold hands and say grace at dinner time. And I was so mortified when... Because mum, I'd be like, mum, can we not say grace tonight because someone's over? And she'd be, you know, we are saying um, grace, Sarah. Yeah, that is what we're doing. We do. And then, you know, mum would grab my friend's hand and then I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was, you know when you're thinking, they're yeah. going to mention this at school on Monday. Yeah. Like they're going to be like, Sarah's family holds hand and praise <laughs> to God around the dinner table. <laughs> When you put it like that, it's so bad. 
Oh, there was a lot of that. It was ten. It was. I was anxious at other people's houses about the way I was behaving, and then also anxious about how my family was behaving around my friends when yeah. they were over. But then it'd be counter um, acted by going to someone else's place and they'd have stuff that you didn't have. Oh, oh I remember I had one friend that had a ping pong table. I thought that was a cool. What? That the is coolest the coolest thing ever. Yeah. I didn't even like him very much. Apologies if you're listening. <laughs> Man, I didn't even he knows like, who he is. <laughs> didn't even like them very much, but I just like to go around there because we could play ping pong for hours and hours and hours. Ping pong. Oh my god. Do you know at first I thought you said pinball like I thought you oh, I'm like oh that would be sick. But how about when like you were having this like, but you were like the first one to wake up and oh, you yes. didn't know the morning routine. That was like the worst. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's or if you woke up in the middle of the night. Yeah. And you thought what well, do I wake my friend up? What do I just lie here? It's a bit creepy. Yeah. Wake up but in the morning it's worse though because you're just like oh do I like because you well, I'd be hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Do I just serve myself just, breakfast? And also you'd know that that, that they'd probably have oh, – whenever I had so but friends always, you know, would have yummy things for, like Cocoa Pops and stuff for yeah. breakfast. So you'd know about it. So you'd, maybe that's why I'd wake up early, just lying there <laughs> waiting. Sorry, can we get the Cocoa Pops out there? Yeah, come on. Come on. I, had, out. I had a friend who had a lolly because was my best mate and she had a lolly cupboard. They just, they just had a, a lot of things. A lolly cupboard, right? And um, it's a bit hard to compete with that. Okay, how do you compete with a lolly cupboard? But I always <laughs> we the, don't yeah. have a lolly cupboard. We do hold hands and praise God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, but you know when you go around to someone's house and you knew, say you knew they had the ping pong table, Jeff. Like I knew the lolly cupboard was there, and mm. you'd spend the entire afternoon, evening, kind of walking past it, <laughs> looking <laughs> at it, <laughs> and you go, you know, and you're just like, when are they going to open the lolly cupboard? <laughs> yeah, time for the lolly cupboard to come out. What do you reckon? And then, if you, I remember always, I'd always crack and say to my friend, oh, like, do you think um, we could go to the lolly cupboard yet? And she'd go, mum, Sarah wants to open the lolly cupboard. Oh, and no, I was like, no, no. Oh, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what were the rules for a lolly cupboard? I don't I know. Never had a lolly cupboard. No, we didn't either. It's just yeah, like a I cupboard reckon... full of lollies that you could, was that? Yeah, it was just, just a cupboard full of lollies. They also had a cupboard full of presents. What? Like presents to give people. people. Like yeah. Staying with Santa Claus. Like soaps and stuff. Yeah, and things to give people if they were going to a birthday party. So like texters and socks and all different things. What a well-organised parent. Yeah. I feel like if I was there, I'd just be randomly opening up at the same <laughs> You would. You there? would. You wouldn't even <laughs> ask about What's in the next cupboard? <laughs> so Jeff's Magic- got him the lolly cupboard. <laughs> Magical cupboards. <laughs> Open all the damn cupboards and see what's in them. Three, triple, ah. You're listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The Melbourne Magic Festival is on at the moment, running until July 15th at the Northcote Town Hall. One of the featured performers is Pierre Ulrich, whose show entitled White Lies we saw a few nights ago, and it was amazing. Welcome to Breakfasters, <laughs> Pierre. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. You've been doing this for 20 years, I read somewhere. The cliche is that magicians never reveal their secrets. How does one learn to become a magician if no one tells you the secrets? Well, the cliche or the the rule is that you don't reveal it as part of your performance. However, in reality, if you go to any library, um, there's magic books readily available. Now, more than ever on the internet, it's actually proactively promoted. So it is a theatrical art form, uh, even though the secret's 
are of relevance. <clears throat> There's even a saying in magic that says that we guard an empty safe. Uh, the secrets don't really matter. It's the way you present them that, that counts. So as such, uh, you learn, I, I just learned that there was a magic shop in Montreal. I'm from Quebec originally, and uh, I was in Quebec City. And uh, I was studying all these little beginner's library books, which contain really cool stuff. But as a, as a young as a kid you don't really know how to grapple with it all but then I went to a magic shop one day with my parents in Montreal and got my first little catalog and a couple of books and the guy at the shop you know he looked at the equipment and managed to sell me a few things as they do and you know and then there's a huge community of of people and back then in the old days it was really hard to uh, I'm saying that with kind of a, <laughs> and a fake nostalgia it's not that that long ago you know but like yeah 25 years ago it was really hard to You'd, you know, you'd have to go to meetings and conventions and mail out stuff and call people. But now with the internet, kids are just exchanging videos of the latest move. They've come up like instantly. So that's it's really a fluid um, community right now. So I it's good. I feel like every kid at one stage wanted to be a magician. What At what point were you like, oh, no, I'm going to be a magician? You just kind of kept going with yeah, it. Yeah, I think I just get it. it was a, it's a great hobby. Like put yeah. aside, I mean, I'm doing it as a professional now and yeah. I love it and it's been a decision i've made but uh, as an art form as well but um yeah just kept practicing I had, I had phases where i got more interested in partying and going out and my magic kind of reduced a bit yeah. in the uh, you know late teens early 20s but it's always been something that i, I kind of learned english reading magic books oh you know? wow yeah because in quebec city it's very francophone yeah um and I was, even though we have exposure to TV, it's pretty much French, a hundred percent. But I had, I was studying these magic books, going, put the coin in the right hand, close your fist, pretend, you know, and and, I'm, and I had to essentially study those uh, because the literature is much more dominated by the American and, and European and, and English market for for magic anyhow at the time. And um, so, yeah, that's how I kind of got into it. But I never, yeah, I just never stopped. And one day I realized, wow, I'm doing gigs, you know, and then, wow, I'm doing a lot of gigs. And last year I went, I think I might just have to do this full time. Yeah, <laughs> nice one. This um, Magic Festival is celebrating its 10th year. Yeah. Have you been to it many times before? And how important do you think this festival is in the world of magic? Well, I'm happy you asked because it's, it's my third time. Yep. So uh, Tim, Tim and Lee, uh, who organise it for the last few years, um, and I think 10 years now, and Lee 5, um, they, they do an excellent job. I mean, the whole team there are, are really amazing. The Melbourne magic community in itself is really good, not surprisingly so, being the kind of cultural capital of the country. Um, or, yeah, we'll I'll, take that. Yeah, we'll <laughs> take that from a, from a Perth guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, and Perth's actually got a really cool scene now, which is growing and, and a lot of work around magic. But in terms of just... No, sheer number and, and the kind of cohesion behind the group. It's the he social head of the uh, Australian International um, uh, Magic Association as well. So, um, sorry, Australian Academy of Magic. So uh, all the kind of heads there are involved which deal with the international ma magical communities are here in, in Melbourne. And the festival's really well run, attracts uh, quite a good showcase of national guys, and also every year they make an effort to invite a few big names from internationally. So to answer your question, I think it's really important. And, you know, nationally it's probably the the event to go to if you're really a magic geek. Uh, and also for just laymen or muggles that want to see good magic... <laughs> There's not a really a better that. forum. I mean, it's two weeks of really good self-produced shows, ranging from 
little kid doing his first show to uh, international pros, you know, who've been running, around, you know, running their own shows for years. Let's talk about your magic. There's lots of different styles of magic. What's your style, and how does it differ from others? Yeah, look, you're right. It's like in music, there's a lot of styles. You kind of have to learn everything. I, I like everything: sleight of hand, card gambling, demonstrations, you know, visual magic. But lately, I've been really um, intrigued by what I call kind of psychological magic. Some people call it mentalism, but I find it's a bit too esoteric to treat it like that um essentially as you saw in my show a lot of it happens to it relates to the imagination and and trying to twisting that through either word plots or or intuition or people's normal kind of reactions to situations um so that's what i've been really into lately but i I don't mind i still practice card tricks every day and do them and you know do coin stuff i love old styles of styles of magic but my show's really i'm trying to frame it in more theatrical kind of environment where there's a bit of a as you saw a theme of time essentially my show's Mm. about time and Mm. our perception and how if you kind of twist it and can create the emotions of uh, of either coincidences or deja vu or or weird things happening (coughs) during your show are you hypnotising people? Oh, look, I do a bit of light uh, hypno. Yeah. Uh, essentially through relaxation and, and just putting people in a state of, of heightened imagination. But yeah. it's not a full uh, hypnotic trance, which really is a misnomer. Uh, hypnosis yeah. is really just, and there's some great mm-hmm. hypno shows that I recommend. I can recommend if you're interested. But it's just a state where people um, uh, open their minds and relax and, yeah. and, and get in a really accepting kind of daydreaming state. Um, I'm think- not a... You know, I'm not. I don't call myself a hypnotist, but I, I do use a little bit in the show. As, yeah, because you got me. I got up on stage yeah. and you hypnotised me, but I found it to be very um, like a meditation. Oh, you were amazing with yeah, it. Yeah, I kind of just because yeah, I just kind of went with it and found it to be yeah. You're right. It's very relaxing and. And you ended up going for a swim, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's something. Yeah. <laughs> a naked swim. Yeah. yeah. Under, <laughs> under, under the full moon. <laughs> yeah, under the moon. So, Pierre, you were telling us off air that you have some magic that you can do through the radio. Well, it's it, people often associate with things appearing and vanishing. Sure. But, uh, look, you were asking me what, what I do, how it works, for example, and to all the listeners here, if I just ask everyone here, and including the three of you here mm-hmm. too, just think of... Um, uh, a number, okay, like a mm-hmm. two-digit number, um, but let's ma- not make it too big. Let's say le- less than fi- less than fifty. Mm-hmm. And I'll just put a couple of constraints. Uh, both digits need to be different from one another, mm-hmm. and both odd. So, for example, it could not be eleven, but it could be seventeen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. So now, if I just go one, two, three, just visualize that number, and please let me know, guys. Uh, did anyone here get thirty-seven? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's two out of three. So that's a disproportionate representation of the actual available numbers here. But, um, Jeff, you... you I got 35. You, no, you, you got, sorry? 35. 35 close, you know. And probably your, your audience members got quite, like, statistically. But that's that's just using, as I said, human uh, ha- habits. But did you notice... So I how had did you do that? Very well. Uh, <laughs> 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 but you've noticed I have this little manila, well, not en- like pay yeah. envelope, but we don't really get pays in, in cash anymore. But a little envelope <laughs> on the table, I've left it there without just paying too much attention to it. Mm-hmm. Um, how about we create, because this was, I was guiding you, I did put a couple of restrictions. But Geraldine, if I ask you now to look me in the eyes, yes. I'll count to three. And when I do, just name the first uh, single digit number that pops to your mind. One, two, three. Seven. Seven. And um, Jeff? Just imagine I've put something in there that's pertinent to what Geraldine just said. Geraldine just said, look me in the eyes again. 
I'm just going to give you a clue. She said an odd number. Second one's going to be um, even. Just n name the first number that comes to your mind when I just snap my fingers. Six. Six. Would you have gone with that, Sarah? I would have gone with eight. Eight. Ooh. Female oh. intuition's usually right. Oh. <laughs> I'm gonna be, I'm gonna make, so look, so I'm just going to open that. It's interesting because I was I feel born. Like I'm, I was, I'm, I'm 38. I'm 38. I was born. I had to check there because it's my birthday. Yeah, it was actually. I'm <laughs> 39. It, it was my birthday four days ago. Oh, happy I, birthday! I've just been in another world. So I'm 39, but I'm born in 1978. So that's always my lucky number. So you went with seven. Mm -hmm. You went with five. Uh, sorry, you went with eight. I went with eight. Female yeah. intuition. Seven, eight. Let's check it out. So in there, you saw it probably in a different manner. I'll just, it's like a little... Um, it's now opening an envelope yeah, and it's a little card in there got, it's and it's stapled all stapled. together. So mm -hmm. who wants to open it up and read? Who's got... I you will. all have radiophonic voices, so <laughs> I usually get the right person in the audience. So just open up those staples and just read that out for the, for the uh, okay, listeners. Okay, it says, please say the number 78. Yeah. It's oh amazing. Yeah. It's my birthday. birthday so so how do you do that? <laughs> Very well. Stop it! <laughs> Tell me! So there you go, some wow. examples of things that don't really need visuality because it's it's purely using numbers and words. So that can kind of work on the radio and, and things like that. So those are simple games that I really like. It's awesome. Is that about, are you leading us to those numbers and we don't realise it? Yeah, a little bit of... There's a bit of leading and, yeah. and, and uh, also... Um, some preemptive information, you know. Ah, so, yeah, right. And also magic. Yeah. And also but, magic. Well, when I say preemptive, it's important. I just want to highlight, we didn't, I no, got here pretty no. late. We didn't plan anything. We didn't oh, write no, anything no, no, down. No, not yeah. at all. No. Because that's, that's they, we just, you just made up those two numbers on, yeah. the, on the go. I'm, right? I'm actually, I can't believe it's, I kind of, I feel like you've hypnotised me and I'm a little well, worried. <laughs> have, there's good coffees in, uh, around across the street. Yeah. The more you have, it will be good. <laughs> so, yeah, there was a quick example for you guys. Yeah. Wow. I, I was listening to a podcast about magic recently and in it, they they interviewed, you know, Penn and Teller. So yeah, they interviewed great. the silent one who I'd never heard him talk. Penn. Teller. Teller. And Penn's the tall, noisy one. Yes. And they were talking about, uh, he was discussing how long it takes to invent a trick. So he said that on average it takes a magician two years to perfect a new trick. And him and Teller try them out on one another and, like, he'll get up on stage after a year of working on something and then perform it to just Teller. And yeah. Teller will either walk out of the room and be like, oh, it's not or they'll kind of work on it some more. Is that the same for you? Does it take that long to kind of yeah, develop a new trick? That's a random kind of two years. It's some, some things I've been working on forever. Like, uh, well, like 10 years ago, I read it in a book. Then I'm like, oh, I want to do that in a different way. You try it, it, it flops. Yeah. Um, or it, it's not that you miss the trick, but it doesn't get the reaction. And then you sit on it for, for years. It's a bit, I'm assuming, like stand-up comedy and, and music, yeah. same thing, you know? Yeah. Um, and then there's some, some sometimes there's technical restriction. Some are financial. Like, yeah, I want to make the plane vanish. Well, you need a plane to practice. So, but a lot of the time it's just you're not ready. You're not mature artistically to present it. Yeah. Even stuff I did in the show, as I said just before, that I'm pretty happy with 80% of it, but there's a little 20 that I'm like, uh, not good enough yet. It didn't play well. Or, so you go back to the drawing board and scrap it and, and change your script. So that it's really, it, it is a theatric, it, it's, theatrical art so you've got to look at it the same way you script it you work mm. on it the magic bit is the most fun bit but it's actually a lot of it isn't it's more about the presentation and, and the um, and the delivery and that's uh, that takes and years yeah. how do, does, it, does the general magician feel about the like super magicians like uh, Copperfield and who was like really big in the 90s and yeah. Chris what's his Chris name Angel. yeah Chris Angel is, are you like ugh 
That's yeah, a little bit, especially. Yeah, right. I mean, Copperfield, <laughs> Copperfield influenced the whole generation, and he's still, I think, the most uh, commercially successful or ha- you know, in total magician in history. And he's done great to promote it. Same as, you know, a lot uh, David Blaine. Like, so yeah. then it moved to TV Magic. So Penn and Teller, are amazing as well. There's a few names like that. Chris Angel's kind of like the a douchebag. She's no. yeah, he is. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I don't mind. But it's like it, it's a bit like in music again. You can compare. Uh, uh, I don't know, Arcade Fire or Bon Jovi. I mean, yeah, maybe that's yeah, a yeah. good example, but, you know, yeah. a cheesy act, you know, Bieber and, bon- and uh, Arcade Fire, and you go, some people will love Bieber, it's like some people like Chris Angel, yeah. but it's maybe a bit cheesy and commercial, but okay. hey, he's allowed to do his craft, and he's, I'm sure, has, but lately he's been criticised a lot just because he's not very creative and, and um, a bit cheesy, so okay. I'm, I don't mind Well, your that. show is not at all cheesy. It's on at the Melbourne Magic, Fe- yep. Magic Festival, running until July 15. It's called White Lies. We've been talking to Pierre Ulrich. Thanks so much for coming in, bringing your magic with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cool. It's such a cool show. Everyone should go along. <laughs> You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. It's time for our Friday Funny Bugger, Laura Dunham. Oh, what a great intro. <laughs> Don't Thank it. you, Jeff. After Hello. all this time, I know how to pronounce your name. <laughs> no, he's going to get it wrong next time. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hello. How Hello. are you guys? I haven't been in here for a couple of weeks. You've yeah, been to Vietnam. You. Mm-hmm. You've been to UK, yes. Jeff. Sarah, you were in the community cup and you <laughs> blew my socks off. Oh, you blew you, my socks off. You were off. commentating. You were I doing was, for Channel 31. I was commentating for Channel 31 and, and it was um, it was fun and I learned a lot but it was a long day. It was a very I could, and I, I had to try and get inter- I had to try and get interviews with people which was really <laughs> really scary because <laughs> I'm not why? an assertive person. Oh. And then we had to like interview a couple of politicians and a couple oh. of sort of public figures. Oh, and really? one oh. of them I had to ask what their name was. It's <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm Turnbull. So I'm not <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm, so who? T- <laughs> I'm no Sandra Sully, <laughs> but here I am. <laughs> Asking the hard questions. Uh, what's your name? <laughs> it was before. It was before the cameras. Sorry, what's your name? Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, it was fun, and I've had a good couple of weeks. Yes. But when I come in for Friday Funny Buggers, I try and like think of something to come in and talk about. Yes. Um, oh, yes. That's sort of the. Gig. And it's sort of part of the idea of. For me to come in and bring something to the table because you've been working all week and you need a break for fifteen minutes. That's, don't don't no, break don't. the magic of radio. It's not, why, it's not why we have this segment. Well, I'm happy to be here. I hope it's very entertaining as well. It's when Jez just rolls back from the yeah. desk. I'm done. It's Friday. Um, so I think of like things that have been going on in my life or things like that's been happening in the news mm. and I can't really think of anything happening in the news apart from like Trump stuff and no one wants to talk yeah, about Trump. No. And then I was trying to think about like stuff that's been happening in my life and literally nothing's been happening in my life. I cooked <laughs> oh. some good salmon last night. <laughs> too. Yeah, really good. <laughs> we get entire segments out of that. <laughs> 
6.15 this morning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You tuned I've in. I've been um, really happy with how much I've been going to the gym lately. Oh, that's good on you. About, that's about it. So then I thought, like, well, when I'm out of ideas, then I turn it to you guys. I start making fun of you guys. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. no, don't, do don't worry. I, well, I started thinking about doing team building exercises because Sarah loves it when I mention the sexual chemistry that you guys have and how there's so much sexual tension in this room. I'm too tired for this. No, it's <laughs> But then I stumbled upon I stumbled upon a really cool game. So I thought we could play a game this morning. Oh, if yes, that's all right. right. Yeah. yeah. Is that all right? It's a bit well, different. Let's find out. Funny buggers. I've never played it before. Cool. Um it's called Does it involve the called... word sexual chemistry? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if there was a game about that. That'd be scary. Uh, particularly ten to eight in the morning. Um, no, it's called Crazy Job Interview. Oh, wow. mm. And so what I've done is I've written down some jobs, right? Different mm-hmm. jobs, and you have to. We'll do it one at a time. I might start with Geraldine because you're probably, you know, the most used to improvisational exercises sure. and comedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You pick a job, right? And then I've got a hat. I've got a beanie here with different traits, right? And you have to pick two traits out of that. I don't know if this is going to work on radio. (laughs) I'm already confused. Okay, you pick a job, then you pick two traits out of the hat and then you have to explain why you would be perfect for that job given those traits. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll give it a go. We'll give it a go. I've got enough for all four of us to do it, but we might run out of time. So we'll see how we go. Let's leave it to the professionals. Yes. All right. Let's go for Geraldine. Pick a job, any job. Okay. Right. Pick a job, any job. What is it? Uh... An amateur magician. Oh my yeah. god! You were just on. We were we just had talking magician on magicians yesterday. <laughs> yes. And he did a trick just like this. Well, maybe yeah. this is a sign. Mm. Oh my god! Did he pull something out of his hat? Uh, no, but he no. bet some spoons. Well, you're about to pull something out of my hat. So pick. <laughs> <laughs> Why did that sound well, creepy? Well, you bet my spoon. Yeah. Well, you so said... pick two traits, uh-huh. and then you have to say why that would make you a good amateur magician. Ooh, okay. What are your traits? Uh, I my two traits are I will only wear stripes. That's more a demand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. And also I can burp the alphabet. Great. Can you oh. can you do that? Yeah, I reckon I could. Do people want to hear that? No. <laughs> no one ever wants to hear that. There's almost no job that wouldn't come in That's handy true. for. I don't even understand what burping the alphabet. Involves anyway. You just burp and say a letter at the same time. Ah. We'll do yeah. it later. Okay. <laughs> it's really we'll spare not, everyone in their yeah. cars. Can you do it? Burp the no, I can't. Oh. No, sorry. Uh, okay, get, shoot. So, so Geraldine, Geraldine, mm. thank you for coming to this job interview. Why do you think you would sit the position here at Triple R as amateur magician? Oh, because um, we really need one <laughs> fast. Just to brighten people's days. Yeah, many many different reasons. Um, Basically, not a lot of people know that, um, like, like I'll only wear stripes and that really helps in helping with the the optical illusion. Yeah. So that's – and that's what I'm all about, illusions. (laughs) Illusions. So that's – like, that's what I drink when I go out and that's what I do in my spare time. And also um, – I can burp the alphabet, so if you know if your illusion doesn't work, hello, 
Still everyone, entertaining the crowd. Well, everyone loves someone burping their ass a bit, yeah, don't they? They sure do. Oh, fantastic, Geraldine. Well, mm. I can safely say um, you have the job. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to take amateur off my title. Yeah. No, because the job was for an amateur ma- magician. I know that you are. Yeah, that was the job title, so don't get it wrong. <laughs> Who wants to go next? Sure. Okay, Sarah's next. Pick a job. I don't like the pressure of having to go after Geraldine, though. She did pretty well, didn't she? She did. You'll do well, too. What's the job? It's an ear, nose and throat doctor. Fantastic. Yes. Yes. Maybe you should pick out your traits this time and not tell us and just put them into the... I like that idea. You like that idea? All right. The mystery. Okay. It's a very warm beanie. Yeah, I've had my head in it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a cold morning. Oh, my God. Sarah, welcome to this job interview. Why do you think you would be good for the role of Triple R's resident ear, nose and throat specialist? That's very important for a radio station. Yeah. Well, we need to talk on the radio. We need to hear. And sometimes we need to smell if there's a fire. (laughs) Well, it's funny you should say that because... um, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm actually um, a dog. And um, everyone loves dogs, particularly yeah. at Triple R. What kind Love of dog, dog are you, Sarah? I've never noticed before. I am a dash hunter. Dash. <laughs> dash, a dash, dash Yeah. No, what's up? It's a, it's a fox dash hunter hunt. crossed with a dash hound. Oh. A dash hunter. a dash hunter. And um, it's just quite amazing that I come into work every day and talk so much, but you just... Um, being a dog and all. Uh, being a dog and all. But um, and I just thought, you know, who you think a doctor, an ear, nose and throat doctor that's a human is phenomenal, but people see a dog doing it, they're much more likely to get their ears and eyes checked. Um, and if that's not enough, I can actually vomit on cue. So should I be clearing out someone's ear and a lot of gunk comes out, just yeah. to let them know that the gunk is really disgusting, I could just vomit on cue. Yeah, and that's good. That's good feedback. <laughs> yes. So mm. they know. So no vomit, ear is fine. Vomit, <laughs> lots of gunk in your ear. I don't know any other ear, nose and throat specialist who is a dog and can vomit on mm. cue. So with that in mind and those special skills, you have the job. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, okay. I guess we've kind of run out of time, Jeff. Jeff no, we haven't. No, no, we've got heaps of time, Jeff. I'm going away from the mic. He took both and then he just took one. All right. And here's your trait. Oh. Pick two traits. So what's your job? Uh, oh, no. Do I tell you oh, the yeah, job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. I do. I'm a cruise ship captain. I'm oh. going for the job as a cruise Ooh, ship hello. captain. Oh. It's a good job. I'd like to be a cruise Ahoy ship captain. me mateys. <laughs> Right. So, Jeff, why do you think you would suit the role of Triple R's cruise ship captain when we go on our radio cruise? Because as a dog, I feel like I might be better qualified. <laughs> yes, well, I, I think I'd bring um, quite a lot to this job, not least the fact that um, I'm not like other men in that uh, most people have two thumbs. Oh, I have three of them. Oh, oh. Three Sorry, I'm a third times better at steering the wheel of the <laughs> yeah, cruise ship sure. I guess, with my enormous thumbs. I guess that is them. another, another you know, digit to press buttons with. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're quite right. And also, should the cruise ship be slowing down and the engine's not turning fast enough, I'd be able to go down into the boiler room and uh, cut up some wood because uh, in my other life I'm also 
Who would have thought it? A champion woodcutter. Oh, oh good on you. Skillet will come in very handy in my new position as a cruise ship captain. I feel like, I feel like your skills and your job went together a lot better yeah. than mine. <laughs> That's pretty. Well, sometimes the stars align. Also, if there's a if there's a hole in in the in the cruise you in stick the, one in the boat, yeah, there's two That's more, true. no problem. That's true. Yeah, mm, wood floats. So, is this the job mine or what? Yeah. Yes, it is. No, no it excellent. is. It is. Should I do mine or do, oh, yeah, or do yeah, we, yeah, oh, we run out of time? Oh no. well, look, we're running out of time, but that's all right. No, I'll just do it. Yeah, right. Here you go. Right, I'll be super quick. I promise. I. Yeah, I no, I'll go. What's your job? Oh, um, accountant. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so somehow I got the easiest work. Did, did you write these? <laughs> Okay, just so you have to say, why would you? I'll be uh, quick. I Laura, why, would you, why do you think you'd be the most qualified person to be our new accountant? Given we've already got an accountant. Mm. Right. Well, so it is actually a competitive position. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, sometimes accountants have to give bad news. You know, if somebody mm. is getting, you know, a bad tax return or their finances aren't in order. And, you know, sometimes accountants, you know, they need to console people. And that comes in, that, uh, like my skills being a really good kisser comes in handy for that. <laughs> So I'll give my clients a smooch, maybe a Frenchie. Somehow it always comes back to the sexual tension with you, doesn't it? And so, and no tension. She's a professional kisser. Yeah. Not only that, but, you know, it's good to have a distraction in the accountant's office because it can be a tense atmosphere as well. Can. And uh, luckily I can tame dingoes. So I have well. some dingoes in my office and they, they work as a perfect distraction for my clients at times of stress. That's perfect. And that's why I would be the perfect accountant for Triple R. Well, maybe I, I might actually get the job now. Yeah, welcome aboard. Someone's yeah. losing their job this morning. Anyway, that's the game. Try Thank it at you. home. Thanks. You're listening to the best bits of the breakfasters from three triple R.